Friends, I'm excited for today. We had a great first service as well. Um, and I'm excited because we're finishing up our series on prayer. And we're talking about the last portion of the Lord's Prayer. If this is your first time with us today, I want to let you know no matter who you are, no matter where you're from or what you believe, if you're in the room or you're joining us online, we want to thank you for being with us today. You are so welcome. And our heart is that you belong here with us. And all those people calling you at home said, Amen. Hey, would you join with me as we pray before God today? Gracious God, we all come to you with different moments in our world, from weeks, from heartaches and joyous triumphs. We come before the same God. You are faithful. You are good. You are our Father in heaven. Your will for us is to flourish. I pray, God, that today as we listen to your word, may it not return void. May we have the courage to live in obedience, to confront what your Holy Spirit might be revealing in us, that we might be a blessing to the world, give glory to you and know you deeper and better. God, help me today. Less of me, more of you. And all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> Friends, uh, I wanted to start with a question. I wonder if you've ever had a moment of unseen opposition. Have you ever had a moment of unseen opposition? Uh, for me, one of my pet peeves in our household is actually uh, cleaning the dishes. I actually like cleaning dishes. I really like a clean sink. I like a clean sink, like a clean bathroom. Um, it's, I, I don't know what it is. It just helps me out. Is anyone else out there? They get a little bit annoyed at dishes in the sink. Some of you there, anyone needs to nudge someone beside you? And so what happens usually, I come home. It's one of the first things I do. I find it therapeutic. I can't usually relax unless there are no dishes in the sink. Um, and especially love cleaning the dishwasher because an empty dishwasher means an empty sink. But sometimes someone's clapping already. Someone's like, yes, this is good. But sometimes I'll clean the sink and I'll clean the dishes and then I'll leave and I'll come back five, 10 minutes later and there's like three or four dishes in the sink. And I'll check the dishwasher and the thing is empty and I'm wondering what kind of spiritual oppression my household is under that I would clean the sink and then moments later, it would be dirty again. Now, in that moment, I don't know if you relate. Some of you are parents. You know what it's like. Uh, you've got children that do this. My greatest confusion is my kids are one years old and two and a half years old. And so I'm asking the question, who is putting the dirty things back into the sink? My wife, Sarah, was in the first service. And when I said that, the whole, the whole congregation was like, ooh. And then I asked her and she said, I thought that was really funny because it's true. And I'm like, yeah, it is true. There's this moment, right, where there's this moment in my household where no matter how much I'm trying to do one thing, there always seems this relentless discouragement that I'm trying to keep it clean. Now, my wife would tell you it's the opposite with our clothes. I'm just like, I'm always creating more washing opportunities for our family. The reason why I say that is because I experience this profound frustration. That no matter how much I do, I never seem to be able to get ahead. I never be able to see and have a clean sink. It's just, it's just where it's at. But, but that sense of unseen opposition, I, I, relate, I, I raise that because I wonder if we experience that in our day-to-day -day life. I wonder if we experience it in our walks with Jesus. I wonder if we experience it in our careers. That there are these moments when we have these agendas, when we have these hearts, we are heading in a direction. But no matter how much we're pulling, and no matter how much we're doing, no matter how much we're even you know, going to church, we, we, we believe where God's positioned us, there seems to be 
this unseen opposition. It's like two steps forward, three steps backward in life. That maybe some of you, particularly over the last three years, there is this profound sense of discouragement that no matter how many times you make New Year's resolutions, no matter how many times you, you decide a certain thing, there seems to be this intangible presence in our world and in our lives that seems to discourage, distract, and maybe delay where we believe we should be. And the truth is, friends, in my experience as a Christian, we live in a world that does not prioritize your relationship with God. We live in a world that the natural state of the world around us is not that your relationship with God, your calling with God would flourish. The world we live in has a bias away from you connecting with your God, your Savior, your Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe some of you today know what I mean. That you can go to church, but sometimes you go to church and as you enter back out into the world, it's almost like you've swum out just off the beach. And if you're not careful, there is a rip that pulls you along. And when you look back at the shore, you're not where you started or where you wanted to be. You've drifted. And that's actually, in my belief, the natural attrition of the world that we live in. That if we are not consciously aware of it, friends, that our world is actually not hoping we would flourish, but there are forces in our world that actually work against what God is wanting to do in our life. And we'll find ourselves drifted all the way down the beach, not where we want to be, in a place that's unfamiliar, unknown, discouraged, despairing. Maybe you know exactly what that feels like today. Maybe some of you here and you're Christians and you've been walking through a season where you're hoping that God might move in a certain way, but it just hasn't been playing out as you, as you thought it would. And there's this overwhelming sense of discouragement. Maybe you're here today and you are yet to know Jesus or you're yet to know God as your Lord and Savior, but there's this sense of, of doubt in you of distraction, of even, dare I say, despair. We're in this series on the Lord's Prayer, and I've loved it. It's been one of the hardest series that we've preached in a while, and I've kind of said this every week because like, you, I go to preach a series, and I'm like, I can't wait to teach on this. And then I sense God's like, I can't wait for you to learn it too. You know, It's like this, this magnifying glass in my life, and, and maybe you sense that too. But it's been great hearing feedback of people saying, hey, I'm turning up the temperature on my prayer life, and that's awesome. And in the last moment, we enter in the last part of the Lord's Prayer. But let me just remind you where we've been. We started with Jesus teaching us how to pray, teaching us the language because relationships are built on dialogue. He says, you can call our God in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You have an intimate relationship with your Abba Father that you can actually come before Him. You can intercede on behalf of ours and say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Hey God, we submit to you and pray that you would have your way in our world. We can pray, hey God, give us, would you give us today our daily needs, our daily bread? We can petition on behalf of the things that we need to make it through today. And last week, it was, it was a heavy series. It was a heavy sermon last week, but I sense God just breaking things off people's lives. We came before God and said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. But today we step into that last moment of the Lord's Prayer. And, and in this moment, Jesus changes the tonality. The last, it's been about glorifying God, enjoying God, calling in His kingdom, praying for our daily needs, even praying that we might be forgiven. But in a moment, there's this negative overtone to where Jesus leads us next. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, He says this, Pray this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Now, this is kind of like the last part of the prayer. I even was running a prayer meeting where once where I said the Lord's Prayer, and I actually completely forgot these two lines. And because I think there's this natural propensity in us that we kind of walk past this part of the prayer. But I actually think it's central, and it's central to understanding the opposition that we face. That, friends, there are two forms of opposition in your world right now to you having a relationship with God and living out your calling. The first is an internal opposition. The second is an external opposition. And what Jesus highlights here is there are two things that are, that are pulling us away, distracting, bringing doubt and discouragement into our world. The first is temptation. And the second is evil. And they are connected, but I want to handle them separately to start off with. That if we are not aware, friends, of the presence of temptation and evil in our life, then we will wonder, why did I wind up kilometers down the beach from where I was as the natural current of our world pulls us away from where God has called us to be? And, and there's this moment where I believe God is calling new life that we would be aware of the things that work against what God is wanting to do. The first one is this, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. What is Jesus talking about when he says temptation? You know, in my experience, when people talk about temptation, they're very rarely talking about good, pure, noble things. When you say, I feel tempted to do something, you're usually not tempted to do something good. No one really ever says, I feel really tempted to sponsor a child right now. Is anyone else feeling that temptation? I feel really tempted to shout someone lunch today. Anyone else feel this? I'm wrestling with this temptation in my heart. I'm feeling really tempted to let you know, my partner or my family member choose what we watch on television tonight. I'm feeling tempted. You don't really feel tempted to do good things. Temptation in and of itself has a negative connotation to it. And I, and I think the Bible would affirm that. Now, of course, you have that moment when grandma comes around. like, can I tempt you with a donut? I'm not saying your grandma's evil and that she's got something against you. But naturally, when we talk about temptation, it's a negative thing. And so what is temptation? And I think basically, when the Bible talks about temptation, temptation is when we have the desire and, and have this desire and act in us to please our selfish nature. Temptation is when there is a desire in us to please our selfish nature. Now, if you've been a part of New Life, you know we talk about sin and selfishness interchangeably. That sin is the curving in of our heart to ourselves, placing ourselves in the center of God's kingdom on the throne of our lives, saying it's all about me. And temptation is the desire that we experience to do that consistently. Put my needs, my wants at the, at the center of all things. See, friends, ultimately, when we are tempted, temptation is the moment when we are tempted to pursue instant gratification at the expense of eternal sanctification. Now, I'll say this again. Temptation is when we have the desire to pursue instant gratification at the expense of eternal sanctification. Now, I've said a lot of shins there and you know, words. Let me just explain what I mean. Temptation is when we want to have instant feelings of good, fulfillment, our desires being met, at the expense of who God has called us to be. That we would trade our identity, our calling, just so that we might feel comforted and good in a moment. That's the power of temptation. And I would hazard to guess that we all know what temptation's like. I think we all know the voice of temptation. Hey, you should have another bite. Nah, it'll be fine. Take a second look. It's not a bad idea. No one will know. Just type in that web address. It'll be okay. 
hey, if it's just happening in your mind, is it really hurting anybody? Everyone at work does it. It's how we get ahead. Why not you? We all know the power of temptation. I think we all have experienced this voice. So where does temptation come from? Well, the Bible actually deals with this. The book of James says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. This is crucial, friends. Whilst at times allowing temptation to occur in our life, God himself never tempts us. He never tempts us with instant gratification at the expense of our eternal identity, calling, and purpose. So where does temptation come from? But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is grown gives birth to death. And so let's just make a real clear distinction here. There's nothing evil about temptation necessarily. Being tempted by something isn't wrong. And sometimes I think we think that is. To have a desire in you is not wrong. When you're tempted to do that thing or go in there, that's not what's wrong. What's wrong is when we choose to act on that which we know is tempting us. Some of you know the strength and power of temptation. You know that there are things in your life that you feel the beckoning, the seductive call of. That seductive call isn't where the sin lies. The sin is when we choose to act upon our selfish desires. And this is so important because a lot in church, we talk about sin being selfishness. That this sin is when we, we fall short of the beautiful people God has called us to be. But sin has an origin point. Sin is always a response. Sin is actually a disposition of our heart when we actually choose to place ourselves at the center and fulfill our desires before we know the way God has called us to live. And maybe you're here today and you aren't a Christian and you're like, wow, this is pretty heavy. But I would ask you, have a, have a look at our world. Is not our world filled with men and women who when met with the desire and the temptation to fulfill their selfish needs and they say yes. Is that not such a common factor what continues to break our world and our society? Our inability to say no to our soul in a moment of instant gratification. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. What he's saying is, is that temptation can be really destructive to your relationship with God all depending on how you respond to it. The way I'd like to think about it is maybe even like a fish. Now, um, I'm not a fisherman. I have too short of an attention span for fishing. I always think fishing's a good idea, and then I get 30 seconds in, and I'm like, this was a horrible idea. I'm leaving. So I don't really catch much fish. But some of you are fishermen out there, and all power to you. Um, but when you fish, I understand the, the concept, right? That when you go to fish, you need bait or a lure. And the idea of a bait and a lure is you are dangling in front of a fish something which looks what will please them, something which looks what, like what will satisfy them. You are dangling before them something which in their mind they see as good, but it's hiding something that is innately bad, something that is innately wanting its destruction. Now, fish are not very self-aware people. They don't people. They're not people at all, actually. Um, <laughs> Now, if you are someone that doesn't like eating fish because you love them, that's awesome. Not making a claim. I'm just saying they're not people. I think we can all agree about that. Now, fish in and of itself, they don't have existential crisis. They're not wondering, you know, does, does my master love me? What is my place in the world? Who am I really? Where is God leading me? That's not what fish are just like food, eat, right? There's an impulse and a desire. 
And so there's this sense that the fishing industry continues to do quite well with fish who never learn the fact that when they lost their brother or sister, there was a reason with that bait thing that they saw. Maybe you shouldn't do that as well. They don't do that, right? They just continue to latch on and they see something, they eat it, and we continue to eat fish uh, throughout the year. Now, we can look at that and go, oh, fish, aren't they silly? I'm so much smarter. Are we? Are we? We see things all the time knowing what porn does. Won't do it to me. Knowing what greed does. Won't do it to me. Knowing what selfishness and gossip does. We've seen it. Yeah, but it would feel good for me right now. But there is a hook. See, temptation is never when things that are bad are put in front of us. It's usually when things that God has purposed for good have been thwarted or distorted by our world and offered in an instant way to take your attention off God. Temptation is when we have the world present to us something that we can gain instantly that God has called us to find in Him eternally. And when we chase instant gratification and give in to temptation, friends, we are actually allowing an internal force in our life to derail our relationships with God. And if you are yet to follow God today, to actually continue to hurt and disarm and, and tempt us down the wrong road, to allow us to drift from where we started. It's when we begin listening to that voice that says, one more trade, one more look, one more click, one more text, one more joke, one more swipe, one more bite. It won't hurt. And the issue is that, that God will for, not forgive you. Our God forgives. Our God loves you. He desires you. It's that he doesn't want you to continue to hurt yourself and others. Temptations, friends, always promises us what it cannot deliver. It says, I will eternally satisfy you. But that is not what temptation ever does, which is why when we give in to temptation, it increases our inability to resist that which hurts. So what hope do we have? Well, this is why Jesus' prayer is so great. Because he says, you don't have to be strong enough. Look to me. We come before God and not say, God, hey, I'm going to be really good with temptation today. Watch me. Come before God and say, God, I need you to not lead me into temptation. This prayer is ultimately a declaration of who we're choosing to follow in every situation in our life. That we're choosing to follow a God who wants your good, who wants you to flourish. A God who actually has a desire for you to thrive in this world. Now, I'm not saying not without suffering. I'm not saying there will be no pain but I'm saying God's hope for you is not to lead you to that which would hurt your soul and your eternity, but to that which would give you life and life to the full. Which means that when we're at home alone and we're on the internet, one of the most powerful things we can do at that moment is say, God, lead me not into temptation. Are you sending me in this direction? When we're on Netflix, when we're out in society, when we're looking at our phone, talking with our friends, and we're at work, and we pray this prayer, it is a prayer that recognizes if we don't go with God, we are leaving ourselves vulnerable and exposed to the wiles of this world. But also when we go with God, friends, the beauty of Jesus is that we go with someone that knows exactly what it means to be tempted. 
The book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This beautiful moment is, is, is when we declare this about Jesus himself, that we believe our God is not a God up in heaven saying, hey, you know, Guys, just don't do those naughty things. No, our God in heaven steps down off the throne, becomes a human being. He walks the path that we could not walk. He resists the things that we could not resist. So he might say to you, I understand what it means to be tempted. So I know the way through. No one in the history of humanity has ever experienced the weight or or the difficulty of temptation like Jesus. No one. Because the minute you give in to temptation, it is no longer tempting. It is no longer difficult. But when you resist temptation, it gets worse. The tempting doesn't go away. So when Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the devil, resisting and never giving in, he knew temptation to a degree and a level that we never knew. Because he never, ever capitulated. So friends, you might be saying, but Jesus doesn't know how hard this is for me. Yes, he does. He knows how it could even be even harder. And he wants to provide you with the strength and direction and the grace to make it through. Not because he stands there and goes, I can't believe that's tempting you. But because he comes along and says, I know the way out. Follow me. Jesus, lead me not into temptation. Lead me out. Lead me through. Guard me and guide me. This is the power of this prayer that we recognize only Jesus can help us through this. Because the world is seducing us into this apathetic sleep state as Christians. And Jesus is saying, don't drift. There's this Greek mythological story about uh, the sirens. And the sirens were these mermaid-like female creatures that would be on these rocks and you know it's quite sinister they would sing these beautiful seductive songs and as sailors would sail past the Greek mythology would say that the sailors would be so seduced by their songs they would steer their boats onto the rocks and and they would be and they would die only two people ever resisted the call of the sirens in, in Greek mythology one was Odysseus another was Orpheus now how did Orpheus resist the call of the sirens Well, actually, he was on a ship with a bunch of other people. And in that moment when the seduction of the sirens began to sing, what he did was he pulled out his his lute, his his guitar, whatever they played back in ancient Greece, and he started to play a more beautiful song. He played a sweeter song than the song of the sirens that delighted the sailors to stay the course. Now, here's the truth. We do not have to look to Greek mythology to know how to resist temptation. Because actually we find that truth in Scripture. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. Lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entraps and ensnares us, keeping our gaze fixed upon Jesus, who is the beginner and the perfecter of our faith. We listen to a sweeter song. Which is why, friends, I love gathering. Because when we sing that song, King of Kings, I hear a sweeter song than the song of the world. It reminds me in my despair that there is a better story to live. That's why we go to small group. That's why we have Christian brothers and sisters. It's not because we don't have non-Christian friends, but it's because we need people to sing sweeter songs over us that call us out of temptation into his glorious light. Because the truth is, friends, there is something that is working against your relationship with Christ. And if you're not careful, it will affect you. It will impact you. There is something that is against your flourishing. 
The world and the powers that occupy it are not hoping your relationship with God will grow. This is why Jesus goes on to pray, deliver us from the evil one, which is a stark reminder to the Christian that there is a force out there hoping to trap and control you. This lady was at a Christmas dinner once. and There was a bee at the Christmas dinner, hovering everywhere, annoying everybody. And so one of her friends opened up this bottle of sugary drink. And as she opened up the bottle of sugary drink, she poured a little bit out onto the ground uh, next to the bottle and she laid it down. And the sugar, sugary bottle, uh, the sugary drink kind of began to draw the bee in. And as it came in and tasted, it flew into the bottle. The lady lifted up the bottle and she closed the lid. Now she was in control. The bee was hers. What was her purpose in luring the bee into the bottle? Was she concerned about the bee? No. Was she wanting it to enjoy the hospitality and the drink? No, no, no. She dislikes bees. Her purpose was to capture and control. The bee had flown into a trap. And friends, we believe that there is, a, there is an enemy in our world. Now, the Bible calls this enemy the Satan, the kingdom of darkness, the forces of the demonic. And when we talk about these things, we're talking about a force that incites us to indulge in the pleasures of the world in a manner that oversteps God's commands. What is the purpose? Is, is the enemy's concern that you might miss out on the good things of God? Is the enemy sitting there going, oh, if you're not tempted in this way, you might have less of a life? No, the enemy's purpose is to capture and control. We must never forget that when we are tempted, there is a force not only in us, but also outside of us, hoping that you will stop following Jesus at the expense of your eternal identity that you might be instantly gratified in a moment. When we think about temptation as merely a, in harmless ways, we give into our own selfishness. Now, yeah, I want to be clear when I say this. I'm not saying that temptation is not the responsibility of humanity. I'm not trying to separate us from agency of what we click or what we watch or what we say. No, I believe in the will of man has agency to decide. But I also believe that this is more than just humanity at work here. See, Jesus goes on to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And here in this moment, as we hear about delivering us from the evil one, Jesus introduces us into a really important spiritual truth. That the world we exist in, friends, is not just a physical reality. It is not just about what's happening that we can see. But as Christians, we believe in the spiritual realm. We believe there is a spiritual reality out there that just as there is a good God with good angelic beings who are wanting the good of the world, the gospel would be declared and people to come to know life and life to the full. There is, not equally, but there is the same, but the kingdom of darkness, wanting for destruction, wanting for rebellion, and wanting for chaos. Now, for those of you who are going, this sounds like a Lord of the Rings kind of story, and I'm wondering if this is a little bit more fictional. Are you feeling okay up there, Michael? Should we get you a drink? I want to let you know that the whole corpus of Scripture reinforces this. That there is not a part of Scripture that says, hey, this might just be made up but actually testifies to the reality that just as there is a force for good in our world, that temptation and many other things are also the tools of the devil, of Satan, of the enemy, and of the kingdom of darkness. And when we are not aware of it, we become exposed and vulnerable. You read from Genesis chapter 3, from the snake tempting Adam and Eve, all the way through to the book of Daniel. Then you go into Jesus in the desert talking to Satan who is tempting him in the wilderness. All the way through to the things that Paul would begin to indicate that the forces of darkness are not a nice idea we tell our kids to say, hey, don't do naughty things. The forces of darkness are real and present and they are working against the kingdom of God. And when we forget that there is a real enemy out there, we forget that we are actually in the middle of what we call spiritual battle, friends. Paul is very clear about this in Ephesians chapter 6. He says this, For our struggle 
is not against the, the, the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, the reason why this is so important is you read some theologians, and, and they've kind of watered this down to make it more palatable. And what they say is simply this, when he's talking about principalities and powers and you know, this stuff, we're actually just talking about psychological constructs and pathological behavior and governments and you know, just, just some human-made things. And what I, the reason why we do that is because I think we get uncomfortable around things we can't clearly explain. Rather than actually recognizing the Bible's not trying to be duplicitous here, it's very clear all throughout the Word of God that there is an enemy who in the beginning rebelled against God and since then has been working against the way and the will of God to bring about destruction and chaos in our world. And what Jesus invites us into when he says, you can pray a prayer, it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's saying, you can go to war against that which brings chaos and darkness into our world and you are invited to do so. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, I'm convinced that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All are attributed to us. He says all this, all, all bad things are attributed to humanity. We've all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being and the existence of the devil, the adversity, the cure, and his fiery darts. Now you're probably sitting here today, if it's your first time in church, you're probably going, what the heck is going on? And I would understand that. But I would say this. That I believe God is revealing to you that there is more at stake here than just your fallenness. Than just your inability to get it right. In no way am I trying to remove humanity from agency. One of the greatest problems in our world is my sin. Is my inability. But there is a force out there that would encourage me to think that sin is the best way to live. And it is not the way of God. When Jesus prays for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 15, he didn't just say, God, just help them not to do naughty things. Help them to stay the path. No, he prays this. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Jesus was very clear, even when prayed in other parts in Scripture, that the Satan was a real and tangible presence and force that he wanted to speak and pray against. And so, friends, what do we do? Well, it's... It's a bit difficult at times, but a guy named Pete Grigg wrote a book called Teach Us How to Pray, expanding on the Lord's Prayer. We've actually been using it as our main content source to wrestle with. And he says three things are really important in response to this. First, know your enemy, know your authority, and know how to fight. First of all, know your enemy. I'm not a sports person. You probably looked at me and detected that. People look at me and think I play basketball. That's just deceptive. I, anything that inquires a quarter word, quarter Anything that requires coordination of my mouth or my hands seems to be really failing me today, right? But when you play, when you play sports, you know, I love sport movies. And my understanding is that before a big game, you get the game tape of the opposing team. And the idea is that you study the opposing team, that you might know their tactics, their strategies, and the way they're operating so that you can counter that. And the th reason why I say this is not because I want us to be a church that's overly fixated on darkness. I don't think that's healthy or helpful at all. But so that we might know our enemy, so we know how the enemy might work, so we might know how to live well in the way of the light. See, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, the Bible says this, Be, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus comes and says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Jesus controversially creates this dichotomy. He says, you're either with me or you're not with me. 
There are two ways to live, in the way of life and life to the full, or succumbing to the power of the thief and the way of darkness that's only seeking to kill and destroy. Friends, I believe that wherever the presence of darkness is, there is chaos, there is disorder, there is not the presence of flourishing, there is the presence of distraction, doubt, discouragement, and destruction. And we can see that in our world, that there is evil in our world that, yes, can be explained by humanity sinning, but also there is evil in humanity that can't just be explained by our own ingenuity. There is this sense of chaos to the course of history where there are times that it's beyond even human capability how dark things get fast. I look at the Holocaust and I don't excuse those in the Nazi party, nor do I think that they were any way not to blame. But I see a power of demonic force that seems to accentuate and accelerate what man is purposing for evil even far greater than they could imagine. Wars, serial killers, I see these things fueled by almost an inhuman force that is celebrating chaos in the way of destruction and darkness. The reason why I say is I was talking to some people this week who were really struggling with forgiveness last week. They were telling me stories of horror. And I was, they were saying, how could humanity do this? And I realized it's actually a really good thing to say it's not just humanity at play here. There is a force of evil in our world that does unspeakable things, unthinkable things, and that we should be grieved about. But here's the even more clear thing. We should be angry about. And we should demand the justice, the grace, and the glory of God would be made known because this is not God's heart or, or, or intention for humanity. And when we're aware of this, it exposes us a little bit more to being able to operate well and detect what's happening in the world around us. That some of us, friends, we're thinking, wow, I've not really experienced horrific things. But sometimes it can just be as plain as opposition to the ways and things of God. My wife and I, we planted a church in Brisbane a couple of weeks ago for New Life. And we were running Alpha on Tuesday nights. When I said we were running Alpha, she was looking after Archer at home and I was there. But like the way my wife and I see ministry is we're doing it together, even though we may not be in the same space. So I'm helping parent Archer and she's helping Alpha. Is that we empowering each other to do that? And there are these moments that on Tuesdays, it was always a horrible day. It would start when we woke up. Breakfast would just be hard and I don't know what it was it's like I would eat too loudly or you know she would breathe too loudly or something like that and we just get annoyed at each other and then something would happen at work and then we'd text and then we'd be miscommunicated and that happens in day-to-day life generally but on these days it just seemed to be stronger and then there were just things that wouldn't annoy us that annoyed us on these days and we'd start to fall apart I remember I'd be leaving the house to you know go to Alpha and I'd be like we'll talk about this when I get home and slam the door right and you'd walk out and be like let's go witness to people about Jesus and you'd be like this feels so bad I actually to be honest can I just be clear I've never slammed the door and walked out of my wife I just want you to know you're gonna ask her about that but um I'd always come home and be like, wow, that was a really great night of Alpha. And like, now I've got to go home and apologize. And, and Sarah would apologize. And we'd just be, what the heck's going on? And week after week, it was happening. And Sarah, it's just got such a beautiful gift of discernment. And she would just say, hey, I, I think this is more than just us. Number one, yes, you should have texted me back. And number two, you were really annoying today. But number three, um, there was a lack of grace in me. It just accentuated stuff. It's just like, I think this is spiritual warfare. Because I'd come home and be like, maybe I just shouldn't do Alpha anymore. Maybe we should just leave church planning. And I'd start making these conclusions. She's like, no, no, no. I think something's winning that's not the kingdom here. And so then we went into Alpha and we'd be like, cool, we need to fight. When Alpha Tuesday came around, we'd wake up and be like, hey, it's Tuesday. I'm going to love you better. I'm going to be more grace-filled for you. I'm going to not care about the dishes today. Let's just love. 
because the kingdom of darkness isn't going to bring chaos. Now, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying when something happens in your household, you're like, this is Satan coming against me. Some of you just need to fold your clothes. But, but like, there's this sense where you're able to actually detect there's a bit of a pattern here. There's a bit of a pattern. I just want to move a bit faster just for the sake of time. Do you know the authority? Do you know the enemy? Do you know that he's present? Do you know that there's stuff happening in your world? The second thing, you must know your authority. The greatest mistake we could make here is become so fixated on darkness. And now we're like walking around and we're like, is the devil behind that bush? Is he in my car? Where's the devil coming at me next? Now, that's not the heart of this. You become overly fixated by darkness, then you actually become entertained by darkness. And that's what we're starting to see in Netflix. We're starting to see in our world. We're starting to see people really excited about dark things. And I don't see the way of God in that. But also, you don't want to come so over here and be like, I'm just not aware of that. Like, you know, you just, I just don't want to really want to talk about that stuff because then stuff goes wrong. You're like, God, where are you? And like, no, there's, there's something happening here. You want to sit in this middle space right here where you're not, so, you're not afraid of the darkness, but you're also not naive to it. That we remember John chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus is spoken about that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it, nor does it understand it. Or one of my favorite is in Colossians 2, verse 15, where we are remembered and having disarmed. I'll put this up on the screen behind me. That's not it. There you go. And having disarmed the powers of and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, I want to just highlight this. What happens is that in the book of Colossians, Paul writes and he's saying, Jesus, on the cross of Jesus Christ, when he died that death and on Sunday when he rose from the dead, he humiliated darkness. He embarrassed the devil who was like, we won. Oh my gosh, he's breathing. What the heck's going on here? Like that is a good thing, which means what? That the very forces of darkness are embarrassed, friends, by the fact that you have been redeemed by the light. That the very idea that you love God, that you are here in church right now, you go out into the world as a missionary of Jesus, that that is something that is humiliating darkness because the darkness has not won. Amen? So we are obsessed with the light, not with darkness. We focus on it because what it reminds us is that we are bigger than the devil would have us believe. And to remember that, we've got to think about spiders. Now, I am afraid of spiders. Anyone else with me? Nothing should have eight legs and eight eyes. It just feels like too overpowered in one being. Now, when I was young, I was very afraid. I had to get mom to wake up. And, and come and kill spiders. Until one night, mom was like, Michael, you need to deal with the spider. So I went downstairs and I rolled up a newspaper and it took me like three hours to just gain up the courage to kill this thing. And I was like speaking at it. I was like, you know, Satan, you have no place in my home. And now spiders are not satanic. That was just how I was encouraging myself in that moment. And I rolled up this newspaper and then I went at it and I was just so ferocious. But the lie was this, is that I was more afraid of that spider than that spider was afraid of me. But we start to believe that we should be more afraid of darkness. And you've got to know this. The darkness is more afraid of you, friends. More afraid of you. You don't want to know why? Because you have a light inside of you that has nothing to do with how good you are, but how good God is. And nothing can rob you of that. Nothing can rob you of that. And so we've got to start seeing darkness as spiders and going, hey, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to play around with you because you're going to bite me. I'm going to deal with you well and once because I have a king who is seated on the throne of righteousness, whose name upholds all things in his power, and he has won the war. This battle might still be in question, but this war is Christ's. And we will be fascinated, we will think about, we will worship and love Jesus. Do you know the authority you have to step into situations and say, I bind you in the name of Jesus. I bind you in knowing that I loose the power of the blood of Christ over this situation, over my family, over this life. And the darkness quakes when you learn to pray the prayer of Christ, deliver us from evil. 
Here's what I know. The devil doesn't want you to pray, friends. The enemy doesn't want you praying. Because it's powerful. Because it works. That's why when you go to pray, watching paint dry seems more entertaining. It's a lie. It's a distraction. And it's disabling you from the very thing that God has given us to join him in the warfare against the darkness. Do you know how to fight? C.S. Lewis says this, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love that. Friends, we're called to sabotage darkness. How good is that? You're called to be the emissary of light wherever you walk. Right now, there is darkness in your home, in your street, in your workplace, and you've been positioned not to run from it, but to shine amongst it. And in Ephesians chapter 6, the writer Paul says this, So when you know there are powers and principalities, equip yourself with the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, and the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now these are not actual items of clothing we wear. They're understandings that we have everything we need to stand and stand firm when the darkness comes calling. You will not move me because I know your plan and my faith is in God. I love what Pete Grigg says, and I finish with this if the band wants to come. You take a stand against the enemy every time you preach the gospel. Every time you are forgiven, you forgive me. Any time you stand up to a bully, you care for the poor, you create something beautiful, you behave with integrity, you practice civil disobedience for the sake of righteousness, or you take a stance that defies his insidious systems of control. Friends, you don't know it. But the enemy wants you to think that you are powerless against the evil in this world. But Christ has called you to be powerful. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And he hopes you forget it every day. May we be a people, not God. God hopes you remember it, the devil. May we be a people who know this. That God doesn't want to lead us into temptation, but in the paths of righteousness. And that you can pray, deliver us from evil. And one day, friends, we will stand in a kingdom where darkness will be no more. Until that day, stand. Stand fast. Endure. For the one who runs before you, his name is Jesus, stood fast for you.